When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt and Final Rise. On this episode of the show, we have life, legacy, and guiding in the North Main Woods with Ted Clark. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 178. Welcome back to the Birdshot Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to another episode, everyone. We've got a great conversation with Ted Clark coming right up. We're heading to Maine. But first, thank you as always to the Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast. I will just quickly remind you that this month's giveaway is the Onyx, Yukonuba, Pine Ridge, Birdshot Podcast, and Shooting Sportsman gift basket giveaway. whole bunch of stuff in there, including an Onyx Elite subscription card and a freshly minted copy of Shooting Sportsman. Contribute for as little as $5 a month and do so at Patreon dot com forward slash birdshot you'll be eligible for all the monthly giveaways and special discounts like the one we have for gumleaf boots right now gumleafusa.com if you're a patreon patron and looking at gumleaf boots be sure to get in touch with me and or jack over at gumleafusa.com all right this is like the third intro i've recorded in the last week we've got a condensed episode release schedule here i feel like i've shared everything i need to share at this point in time This episode is releasing on Friday, June 17th. So if you're listening right away on release day, hope you have a killer weekend and are enjoying some summer weather. I'm heading to the cabin this weekend where I will dip my toes in the water and stare off longingly into the distance at the adjacent and far off Carlson Woodcock covers, dreaming of fall. But there's plenty of summertime left to enjoy. So until then... You have to make do with this episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Today, we're talking to Ted Clark, main guide, avid grouse and woodcock hunter with a bit of a legacy story in his family, some really neat ties to some notable names and 
Just some really cool family history that Ted shares on today's episode. We cover a lot of ground from Ted's intro and background to hunting in Maine, what to look for, what to expect, and overall just a really enjoyable conversation with somebody that is clearly fond of and very passionate about upland birds, bird dogs, and all that the upland pursuit entails. Oh, and I almost forgot. Ted kind of breezes over this in the episode, but he did want me to mention that he went through the Orvis Hunting Guide School, which he told me a bit about offline, and he just wanted to relay that he really enjoyed his time in that school, and it served as a launching pad for him into starting his journey as an upland hunting guide, which you will hear a lot more about on today's conversation. So kick back and enjoy it. Let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot podcast, all the way from Maine of Enmark Guide Service, Ted Clark. Three, two, one, and we're rolling on the Birdshot podcast. Welcome to the show, Ted. Hey, how you doing, Nick? I'm doing really well. It's a beautiful day here in Duluth, Minnesota. And by beautiful day, I mean I'm looking at my weather station here outside the Birdshot studio. We've got mostly sunny, 72.9 degrees. Pretty nice. Sounds like it's about the same here. Probably a little bit warmer. I think we're pushing up towards uh, towards 80 right now. So it's, Really? Uh, yeah, we... I don't know, it was funny this year. It seemed like we just flipped the switch on uh, on winter, and one day we had snow, and the next day we were seventies. Um, it's it's happening more and more like that lately. So it's uh, it's pretty yeah. warm. So I feel like it was it was somewhat like that for us too. Did you have a like? We got to be fairly similar latitudes. I might have to pull up the map here in a second. Did you have kind of a late spring this this year? Would you say? Would you categorize it as that at all? I don't. I don't know. I mean. I, I would say weather-wise, it kind of felt that way, but I think back to uh, I think back to when I found my first tick, and uh, and that was <sighs> nice. like March, which was super early this year. I was shocked at how early um, they came out. We had a pretty mild winter though, anyway, so that wasn't okay. uh, that wasn't a bad thing. But yeah, I would say we probably had a fairly uh, fairly late spring. All right, so before we get too far ahead of ourselves here. You are, where are we talking to you from today, today? I am in central Maine, um, just kind of uh, located between uh, Waterville and Augusta is, is where I live. So Okay. Oh, there we go. All right. Waterville and Augusta. I see you. Yeah. So you're a little, yeah, you're a little further south than I am here. Obviously uh, a bit different, but. I spend, uh, I spend the majority of my time uh, with, uh, with work and everything on the, uh, kind of the, the far North Maine. Um, I spend, you know, generally three, four or five days a week up, uh, up in that area. So, yeah, we're going to, we're going to jump into that quite a bit today. I think, uh, I, I say, I feel like I say this all the time when I'm talking to my guests from around the country as I do want to visit a lot of places, but man, I, I gotta be honest, Maine is, Maine is up on the list. You know, when it comes to traveling, hunting, you know, I obviously I hunt a lot of rough grouse and woodcock here, and if I were to, let's say I were to plan a hunting trip out there, it would be for the same thing. So you kind of, on one hand, you're like, well, that's a long ways to go to hunt <laughs> the same birds. But man, even our based on our conversation last last week, just talking to you about the land, 
you know, the land ownership dynamics and, and it just like, I could, I could get jacked up for a, for a hunting trip to Maine. I think it's, I, I experience the exact same thing because I get questions all the time about, you know, heading out West somewhere, headed down South somewhere to, uh, to hunt. I'm like, man, I have a hard time leaving Maine, um, October, yeah. November, December. I'll waver a little bit, maybe give me a, uh, give me an opportunity to get out of here, um, a little bit, but we, you know, we can hunt grouse right from, you know, end of September, first of October, all the way up through the end of, uh, end of, uh, December. And, uh, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's tough to leave. <laughs> yeah. I hear that. I hear that. That's <laughs> as much as I always, I like to sort of keep the idea of a couple of late season trips in the works to potentially escape some winter weather. But as it has been the last couple of years, as long as the weather kind of cooperates late into the season here, I'm, I'm not that willing to to pick up and leave, and and then you're kind of getting towards the end of hunting season, and uh, you know whether I don't know if slow down is the right word. I keep going pretty good as long as I can, but uh, the idea of of tacking on another trip is uh, is a bit of a challenge, especially for me, I guess, with a couple little kids at home now. But yeah, I'm just glad to have that good good hunting out my out my back door. Yeah, so well, I think that's uh, that's a blessing that both of us uh, both of us share. I. Uh... You know, December's interesting for me because December's certainly uh, more challenging. The areas where I spend the majority of my time uh, hunting up north as we talked, you know, December, we're starting to see snow and frigid yep. uh, frigid temperatures. But for me, that's a little bit of a challenge. And my uh, my guidance has slowed down to, to all but a halt um, kind of after Thanksgiving. So for me, it's an opportunity to get out and do a little bit on my own with myself, my dad, my uncle, that kind of thing. So, yeah, very cool. Well, with there, let's jump in a little bit. Why don't you give us a, a little overview? You are Ted Clark, obviously joining us today from Maine, obviously a rough grouse and woodcock hunter, as as we've already touched on. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and some of the other things that keep you busy as, as far as work and your guiding goes in the fall. Yeah, so I uh, I guess I have kind of a early onset uh, grouse hunter. I, that was the first thing I started hunting as a kid and I grew up in a family that, uh, you know, the outdoors was, was hugely important. Both my mom and father's side of the, uh, the family were, you know, kind of a long line of outdoorsmen and outdoors women. And, uh, you know, so I started early, I probably harvested my first grouse in a, uh, <laughs> in an interesting way, I guess, when I was probably, I don't know, I, I was thinking back on that. I, I would say I was probably eight or nine um, years yeah. old when I did that. It was Thanksgiving morning um, and I was oh, out nice. with my dad. Yeah, we were just out for a uh, for a drive. We owned some land um, in what we call down East Maine, which is, uh, which is kind of you know, it's actually famous for woodcock hunting, um, but a lot of folks, okay. you know, that are kind of familiar with the tradition of grouse hunting in Maine are probably familiar with, uh, um, with Grand Lake stream in that area. And that's, you know, that's the area that we own some land. So we were out driving around and my dad, uh, kind of came onto the brakes in the truck and we, we were road hunting, um, which I'm sure a lot of people will, uh, roll their eyes about, but I've got a soft spot, I guess, for, uh, for road hunters. Cause that's what my roots are. Um, but, yeah. uh, you know, we came to a stop and he says, you want to shoot a bird? And I said, Oh, that geez, that'd be great. So we jump out of the truck and load up a, uh, a 410 bolt action, um, shotgun, <laughs> which I still to this day have, um, I don't, I uh, don't shoot birds with it anymore. I'm not good enough shot for that. 
Um, but, uh, you know, I walked back the road, uh, you know, 15, 20 yards and there was the bird kind of on the side of the road. And I, I shot him the first time he fluttered down into the woods. My dad says, no way you've got him. I ah, geez, no, I think I might have. So I walked down and I got him, but not very well. And, uh, so I proceeded to, uh, to harvest him with probably close to a box of shells and didn't get one, <laughs> didn't get one pellet in the meat though. So I was a terrible shot. Some things have not changed, um, changed much since. And, uh, you know, I walked out of the woods and of course that was a pretty, uh, pretty proud moment, uh, for myself. And I'd say from there on, I've been, uh, I've been hooked to, uh, to bird hunting. I, uh, you know, I left the state for four years in college and went down to Pennsylvania and was situated kind of right on the edge of the, uh, of the flyway, um, the migration there for ducks and geese. And, uh, I became friends with some, some pretty good, uh, goose callers, duck callers in particular. And, and, and they kind of showed me the ropes with, uh, uh, with waterfowl hunting down there and I became a pretty avid waterfowl hunter, but, you know, graduated as you and I had talked, I graduated during the recession as much as I wanted to stay in Pennsylvania. I really wasn't an option for me. So I came back to, uh, back to Maine and, and picked up the, uh, picked up the boots and, and the, uh, and the shotgun and be, uh, went back to, uh, went back to grouse hunting. So yeah. shortly after, I guess I started my career, um, uh, the opportunity to go to a guide school, um, came up and, uh, you know, I went to, I went to guide school to become a licensed main guide and I, and I passed my guide test about, I guess it was 10 or 11 years ago now and, okay. uh, and became a grouse guide, um, following that. So I, you know, I saved the large majority of my, uh, vacation time, um, for October and November. And I wind up taking five to six weeks off in October and November and, and guide for a lodge up here in the, up in Northern Maine. So I don't get much hunting. I don't get much hunting in anymore. It's, I can probably count on, well, I bet you I can count on two fingers. The amount of time I, <laughs> I carried a gun last, uh, last season. Really? I, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah. you know, but for me, um, you're in the woods. Yeah. You're in the woods. The dogs are getting really good work uh really good yeah. work done and for me it's a social aspect that's what i really enjoy about it i'd never be a deer hunter a big game hunter i don't have anything against it i just like to talk too much so i enjoy talking i enjoy getting to know people <laughs> um i enjoy watching the dogs work and for me somebody harvesting a bird over the dog is just as good as if not better than me uh than me doing it so i uh yeah i don't i don't get a chance to hunt very much yeah. Well, that's cool, man. It sounds like, uh, you're, you're, you're definitely spending time the way you want to. So that's what it's all about. Yeah. It's a good time. I got to set the record straight here. Now, what is, what would be the, now I think I have an idea that oftentimes grouse, roughed grouse are referred to as just <laughs> birds in Maine. Is that correct? Sure. Well, there's an old saying, uh, in Maine that it's a grouse. If you shoot it on the wing, it's a partridge. If you shoot it on the ground, Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, so I would say that that fairly applies to to this part of the world too, or at least I've sort of adopted that uh, that saying because, um, yeah, my my intro to intro to grouse hunting is is similar to yours in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, I will I will say that I haven't seen a lot of bolt action four tens, but <laughs> I I did uh, I did borrow one from a friend 
on a on a particular hunt to shoot a partridge way back when. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you know that that gun's got a lot of history because my dad shot his first deer with that same gun. Oh no, uh, kidding! With a, yeah, with a four ten slug, he shot it out of a stand, and uh, so <laughs> it's got crazy. a uh, it's got a lot of history. So I hadn't shot much, but it's got a couple firsts um, under its belt. So do you know what it is? Like, is it a Mossberg or something? I don't know why that name comes to mind. I would have to look. I honestly okay. don't remember. So. Yeah. Um, I don't know much yeah. about, I, I don't know anything about the one that I use other than it was, as you said, a bolt action 410, but. Oh, and it's awkward because I'm left-handed. So of course, you know, it was <laughs> You're just, reaching across to work the bolt. <laughs> oh, it was as awkward as of an opportunity as it could get, but boy, it started <laughs> a, uh, it started quite a, uh, quite a hobby, I guess is, is, is what it did. So. Yeah. That's really cool. But let's talk dog. So, so I sure. think this was a this was an after after college thing. You you got into the dogs and eventually started grouse hunting. Is that right, Ted? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my senior year of college, I got a uh, I got a lab. Okay. Um, you know, being a waterfowl hunter, it made a lot of sense for me to get a lab. So I had an opportunity uh, to uh, to get a lab, and it was towards the end of the uh, my senior year. I think I got him right the weekend after Easter um is when i picked him up and we were not allowed to have dogs in our uh uh we were renting a townhouse okay and it yeah, was yeah. me and two other waterfowl hunters that were, were in this townhouse together and we all kind of got together and said well boy you know it'd be nice to have a dog and uh you know i think i think we can maybe i think we can make that work because we hadn't seen our landlord since we started renting the place you know <laughs> so it had been close to a year we hadn't seen the landlord and uh, so we go down and pick this dog up on a Sunday and we get back. And this is no joke. Monday morning, the landlord knocked on our door <laughs> and said, hey, we just want to let you know that we're going to be starting to build a new townhouse across the street from you. So now they go from never seeing them to being across the street on a daily Every basis. Day. <laughs> so, yeah. So sneaking that dog out in the morning at four o'clock before they started work and then sneaking them back home at the end of the, uh, at the end of the day, it was, uh, it was quite interesting, but we got, we got some, we got him on some birds, uh, pretty quickly there. And, uh, and, and, and that kind of started it for me. And then I, you know, I, I, I graduated college and started a job um, in, uh, in heavy construction where I was traveling, you know, I'd leave Sunday night and get home, you know, quite often Saturday. Mm. And, uh, you know, so I was home for a day. So my parents, uh, my parents would watch, uh, his name was Tank. They'd watch him during the, uh, during the week for me and I'd have him on the weekends. Um, but you know, I, I took a little bit more of a stable job that required less, tra uh, less travel, three years after that. And, uh, I went to take tank and my parents said, eh, yeah, no, we don't think so. He's, he's our dog now. So, um, so <laughs> tank he, was uh, stolen from you. <laughs> tank was stolen. So anyways, it, uh, you know, it, it became time to start looking for another dog and I got hooked up with a great, uh, great breeder here in, in, in Maine called Mary Meeting Kennels that, uh, they breed German short haired pointers. And, and mm -hmm. I was able to get a male, um, German short haired pointer. And, uh, he was my first bird dog and he's, you know, he's sitting on the couch here looking at me, uh, knowing nice. that I'm talking about him. He's been kind of the, uh, the rock star. And I will say that he is resilient because as much as I have tried to screw that dog up, uh, with my lack of ability to train, he is, uh, he has become a, an amazing grouse hunter. It's been really fun to watch him, uh, watch him grow. So, um, that's cool. So, yeah. So I got him and, you know, we hunted, uh, we hunted solo, him and I hunted solo for, for a couple of years. I would guide for a week 
and uh, I would guide for an outfitter that had, um, you know, several dogs of his own. And he had one that was pretty seasoned and he would always let me take, uh, take her with me. So I had two dogs I would guide over, um, for that week or the two weeks that I would guide for them. And then a couple years ago, I, uh, got hooked up with Paint River, um, Lou Wellens and was able to, uh, to get one of their, uh, one of their setters head of their litter. Um, so I got him, he's two years old now, just, just two. He came home, um, two years ago yesterday, I think is what it was. And then, um, yeah, you and I started talking last week and I'm looking at a nine week old right now, uh, again, from, uh, from paint river. So a lot yeah. of excitement. <laughs> Love it. I got a sneak peek of that pup. He's a, he's a good looking boy. Yeah, he'll be a good looking boy. He, he, he's a good looking boy and he's kind of got that, uh, don't realize that they have legs right now going. So yeah. he's, he's pretty gangly, but he's starting to get his legs underneath him and, and he's beefing up and he's, I think he's going to be quite a bit bigger than my other, uh, my other male setter. I might male the two year old is pretty small. He's only about 35 pounds. And, uh, you know, so I think this guy's going to be bigger, but there's a lot of promise here. I'm pretty excited about what I'm seeing from him so far. Yeah. When you got the short hair and then on into the setters and stuff, and, um, as it relates to your grouse hunting, you know, did you like, what do you recall about learning how to hunt with the pointy dogs and, and how your like the way that you pursued grouse hunting changed and evolved with those dogs? Well, I think, you know, I mean, dogs just completely, you know, it, it introduces a totally different factor. And for me, yep. the, uh, you know, it, it becomes less about the actual harvest of the game and more about, um, you know, more about the dog works and the dog, yep. um, you know, doing their job. And, and, and it's a full, it becomes a full-time job, right? Um, you know, it was funny last year I, uh, guided somebody and, and, and he had just retired, and I've guided him now for seven years. And he said, you know, boys, he says, after watching Nash um, run this year, Nash is my two-year-old setter. He said, uh, he said, well, I think, you know, I'd really like to really like to get a setter puppy. Um, he said, I think that's going to be, uh, I think that would be nice. And I, you know, I've always wanted that and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, him and I were staying together in the same cabin because we've become pretty good friends. And, uh, you know, Sunday, Sunday morning, we are not allowed to hunt on Sunday up here. So, uh, oh, really? Sunday morning. Yeah. Yeah. We okay. can't hunt on Sunday. So we have Sundays off. So he gets up to, uh, to go to the bathroom at four o'clock in the morning. My, my client gets up to go to four uh, to the bathroom at four o'clock in the morning. He walks out and I'm cleaning puke out of the kennel. Um, and he looks at me and chuckles and he says, you know, I'm going to just let you, just let you keep the dogs, <laughs> you know, it's, it's fun, right. And it's fun and it's hard work, oh, yeah. but it's, it's yep. a year round job and it's, uh, you know, it's tough. I've got three of them and they need to be run every single day. And yep. you know, it's, it's, it certainly complicates things. So, but for me, it's, it's become what this is about. If it wasn't for the dogs, I wouldn't hunt. Um, yeah. you know, and I, and I, and I certainly wouldn't, uh, wouldn't guide. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you're not, you're not the first person to, to share that sentiment. That's for sure. But yeah. What, what did you, I, I don't know if, if we breezed over this or not, but when you, after you had the short hair and then you were thinking about a setter, was there anything in particular that, that got you going on wanting a setter? I think, you know, when I started, uh, when I bought my short hair maverick i was still i still had kind of a toe in the waterfowl 
yeah um, yep. side of things so for for me it was very appealing to have a dog that could really do well at uh at both things and i remember i had a friend that i that i hunted with a lot he always said he said you know if i all i did um was uh was waterfowl hunt then i would get a chessie and if all i did was grouse hunt then i'd get a setter um but i like to do both so i just you know i got a versatile dog and they do pretty well at both things but gotcha yep you know so for me i don't waterfowl hunt anymore i haven't done that um now almost since i got my short hair um you know because grouse kind of encompasses so much of my time yeah uh so yeah and i just you know, I watched my first setter work. I was guiding a guy that had a Llewellyn um, four or five years ago, and I just fell in love with the the movement, the way they, uh, you know, the way they work the hunting grounds, uh, and their attitude. You know, the attitude was uh, was so much different. You know, and of course, every dog's different, anyways. It's not necessarily breed um, breed specific, but I just really enjoyed um, watching that and kind of fell in love with that. So I, you know, I merged towards the setters. Yeah. I don't know if you've, you listened to, I think we talked about you, you had heard when Kyle Warren was on my podcast the first time. Well, then the second time we had him on within the last year and we talked a lot more about the tracking and true dogs. Like, do you have a, do you have any thoughts uh, as far as like your setter and where he falls on that? So I would say my short hair, I would say is a hundred percent tracking. Um, no tracking dog. Okay. Yes. And then my Yep, my two-year-old um, would be a true. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, he runs pretty big and he's fast. I've never, never seen a dog hunt as fast as as what he does. I mean, we'll go out and you know I'll do three miles and he'll do fifteen, sixteen miles and never get wow. more than seventy-five yards away from me. Jeez. Uh, but he hits the brakes hard. Um, yep. He comes into contact with scent. And, uh, it was neat. His first point ha- that happened during training was one of those real kind of classic points where he's coming up the field and, you know, slams on the brakes and does a 180 degree turn and crouches down. And I just, I saw that and I said, boy, that was a good decision on my part to get a setter. That's cool. So, um, yeah, he can hit the brakes pretty hard out of that speed. Awesome. When it comes to training developing dogs do you have any particular methods or strategies that you employ uh and then specifically what not percentage but how much running on wild birds do you do and how much do wild birds play in the development of your dogs versus say pigeons or pen race birds you know my first few months you know first year really i i just let them be a puppy yeah. Um, you know, I just kind of let them do their thing. And, you know, as you and I kind of joked before we got started here, um, you spend a lot of time trying to kill, prevent the dog from killing themselves. Um, the first, <laughs> <laughs> the first few months. Cause What's they're in just your mouth? So, yeah, exactly. What's <laughs> in your mouth and where are you going? And, you know, stay away from that and don't pull the chair over on yourself. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a handful of first, uh, first few months, but you really try to kind of balance that. Right. So they can still be a puppy and explore and maintain that independence and that hard headedness. I really like that hard headed, um, independence, especially up here. I think that's, uh, that, that's extremely helpful. Yeah. Um, when it comes to, uh, when it comes to grouse and the, the covers that we're hunting. Um, so I try to ma- uh, maintain that we'll do gunshot introduction and then we'll start, uh, introducing them to, uh, to homing pigeons. I'll train with a friend of mine that, uh, okay. that has homing pigeons and we'll start, uh, you know, we'll start doing that with release traps and that's, you know, that's pretty good, but you know, we didn't talk in the beginning. My, my full-time job is I work with, um, 
I work with loggers. Um, yep. I do uh, claims investigations some um, for the insurance companies for uh, for or for the insurance company for loggers, and I'll do uh, I'll do risk inspections for loggers. So I spend you know four or five days a week um, in the woods in areas that we hunt. You know, so my dogs get an enormous amount of exposure to uh, to wild birds. So they're they're going with you basically every day when when you're on the road. Yeah, they're in the yeah, pretty much. Yeah, unless I'm going to be in town, um, sure. you know, for the day, they're uh, they're loaded up and they're going with me. I've got a little, uh, I've got a dog box in the back of my truck, and I strap that in, and uh, you know, we got a couple fans, we got some water, and, and and we go for the day, and we'll spend the day um, out visiting with customers, and you know, I might spend hour, hour and a half with somebody, and then on the ride back, we'll get out and walk for an hour or so and explore some new, uh, explore some new areas, and, uh, and, yep. and and find some wild birds. So we'll spend a lot of time. Um, working those birds on, uh, or working the dogs on wild birds. Yeah, awesome. Uh, that's got to be uh, how how good of a pipeline of uh, new new covers and intel you're getting from the loggers. That's got to help. Yeah, I mean that helps. You know, for me, I've been doing it. You know, I've been doing this nine years now um, with the company that I'm with. Uh, you know, so a lot of the a lot of the first times I visited these uh, these loggers, you know, the, the the areas that I visited them are fantastic areas now. Yeah. Um, yeah. But just you know, it raises your IQ of the woods. Um, yes. You know, and you know, so I'll have my alpha 200 in my passenger seat and i'll be running up the road and just marking spots as i go and i started uh i started scouting a couple years ago now with with tablets and uh okay um you know in mapping programs on tablets but i'm friends with foresters um that will that will send me maps and the maps are up to the day typically updated as far as where the cuts are um so i can get some pretty good intel um, on the areas that, uh, that we're working, but yeah, you know, I mean, as helpful as the technology is, it doesn't replace just being out there and, right. uh, and looking things right. over. Yeah. The, the way I look at it is, I mean, it connects a lot of dots, you know, the technology interfaces with, especially with your work and you're fortunate to be out driving roads, you know, for your, as part of your day job, well, you can, you can obviously be looking around and then now you can not only see what's, you know, 50 feet on the side of the road, but you can, with the aerial maps, you can see what's, you know, hundred, 250, 300, 500 yards from the road. And that's where the technology I think really plays a role. Kind of, you can kind of get a clue of maybe something you see and then the map can, can lead you into a spot and you can go check it out but yeah that's awesome that you get to be out there and running the dogs yeah i think you can cover a lot more ground with it right Um, yeah be more efficient you know yeah i mean on a day where i'd go out and walk you know four covers um just to check it out and feel fairly uh competent on that cover you know i can cover a lot more and eliminate a lot more uh by using the uh using the technology um so it may mean more trips and uh and more fuel burned but i think uh you know in the long run it's been uh, it's been enormously helpful you know when it comes to the scouting yeah, that's cool. I, tomorrow, uh, this obviously won't be out yet, but I got a I got an interview planned with a, a forester for Wisconsin over here. I've gotten to know him. Um, he's a he's a friend of mine. I hunt with him every fall. And um, just your comment about getting getting to know the forester that is uh, that's a big big deal. They're obviously in the woods as much, if not more, than than most people and they're setting up timber sales and they've got a lot of good quality intel. But I think your comment about, I mean, just like upping your knowledge about forestry in the woods. I mean, that, that goes a long way, I think. And I just find that stuff 
interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we spend so much time around that that I think it's just natural that you would find it, uh, you would find it interesting. You know, I mean, our a lot of our foresters up here are using a program called Events and Maps. And uh, that really requires all that requires is for the forester to walk within blue uh, Bluetooth range of those machines that are doing the forest, uh, the harvesting, and uh, they can download up to date, know exactly where the cuts have been done or what's been done for a cut and where the, you know, just right down to where the piles of wood are. Um, but that's all updated immediately now through that technology. So, you know, getting to know the foresters and, and, uh, and the loggers, I think is, it can be enormously helpful. That uh, that tech I didn't know that name of that technology, but I think I'll have to ask Mike this tomorrow when I interview him. But he he was sending me some screenshots and stuff of of new technology on logging equipment that sounds very similar to that, kind of like that pre- precision agriculture stuff. I think basically they're they're yeah uploading the maps and and drawing the timber sales and I mean all that GIS data can you know eventually some of that stuff makes its way to us as hunters which that's I mean that's some of the highest quality information you can have as a grouse hunter yeah most of these forestry machines just have tablets installed in them so most of them are running just either iPads or you know an Android based uh, based tablet and uh, you know just exactly the same way that I run Onyx in my uh, in my truck or in Cal- or CalTopo in my truck, uh, they're running Avenza and it's able to kind of track their movements and and uh, they input a little bit of data. Um, the 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 operator would input a little bit of data into it, but then you know the forester, like I said, is able to pull that down pretty much immediately and uh, update the maps. So if you can if you can become friends with a forester to the point where they're willing to share some of that information with you, that would be that can be pretty helpful <laughs> we should start a, a buy your forester a beer campaign or something like that <laughs> yeah uh, every forester i've ever known would probably like a campaign like that so that <laughs> depends on how big of a grouse hunter they are and how protective they are of that information that's right we've got a few up here that i do know that are big uh, avid grouse hunters for sure so <laughs> are you uh being the insurance guy now you you're not investigating claims now where where the uh the machine crashes and the the operator says it was the tablet was supposed to be driving the machine we're not at that point yet are we Ted? <laughs> no 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 i'm not but interestingly we are starting to uh to see that technology just a little bit right now where they can yeah. um, run those machines with uh with remote controls um we had a couple of machines that came to the state a couple of years ago that uh, for sale um it was my understanding that they had cut minefields down at fort bragg and uh yeah and uh they had to cut the timber off of it i guess before they could clear it i'm not really sure what the history was there but they uh um, yeah it was completely automated remote controlled so pretty uh pretty interesting what technology is doing now yeah well i suppose anything that can keep forestry efficient and cutting edge I, i suppose that could definitely have its advantages for us as we hope that that industry continues to thrive in areas that we want to grouse and woodcock hunt that's for sure well, it's such an important piece of what we uh, of what yeah. we enjoy, right? It's you know this 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 recreation. I think is you know logins logins an enormous component of that, and uh, you know from what I've seen the. You know, most of the places that kind of the grouse hunting's fall off, fallen off, it's you know directly related to the uh, mm-hmm. to the forestry industry. Um, you know, fallen off, and I think that's that's a major reason that we uh, you know we're so successful up here is because we are so active with managing our forests. Yep. Well, I do want to. I want to talk to you about the main guide, but I 
maybe this would be a good point to because you mentioned it early. You had some some hunting. You know, hunting was in your family. It's kind of part of your lineage, and there's a lot of history there. And even so much as it, it, was it your grandfather that that used to hunt with Corey Ford? Yeah. So my grandfather was the main guide. Um, I never knew my grandfather. He died when I was. I think my grandfather passed away when I was one or two. Um, I'm not sure. I never knew him. Um, but he uh, he was a guide. And okay. uh, he guided grouse hunting, he guided, guided fishing and deer hunting um, in down East Maine in that Grand Lake Stream uh, area. And he had quite a quite a cast of characters that a lot of folks uh, that are listening will probably know of. Corey Ford um, being one of them. Corey Ford came up pretty much every year and, uh, and, and hunted with my grandfather to the point where he actually stayed um, right with, with my family. He'd stay at my, uh, my grandmother's house. And, uh, you know, my grandmother would cook for them. I think you and I had talked there earlier that, uh, um, the article that was written, there was an article written in March of 1979 about, about bird hunting with my grandfather. And, uh, in that article, they, uh, they, they printed my grandmother's uh, baked bean recipe and she cooked it with, uh, she cooked it with woodcock, um, which was a great way to make those quite edible even for people that don't really enjoy woodcock um <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah they printed the uh they printed the article in uh, in field and stream i think that was march of 1979 um that they had uh, done that but you know ted williams uh, the baseball player from the red Sox, um came up and hunted every uh, every year and if anybody's a baseball fan of they they know ted williams uh, well that name um he came up every year and uh, and hunted with my grandfather as well so i always kind of felt this draw um, to become a main guide because yeah. I, you know, I never had that relationship, um, just because, you know, because he passed away, um, so young. Um, so for me, that was a big driver for becoming a, uh, becoming a main guide. And then specifically a, uh, you know, a bird guide because he had, uh, you know, he had bird dogs, right? My gr- he had bird dogs when my grandmother met him and, uh, and he had bird dogs right up, uh, right up through. So he always read pointers though. Okay. Pointers. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's a that's a cool way to obviously carry on that legacy and sort of sort of have that uh, connection with him, even though you didn't necessarily have a have a huge relationship with him. That's neat. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty cool, and it's been something my grandmother and I have kind of bonded quite a bit over. I've got my grandfather's uh, main guide jacket hanging up in my oh, uh, in my office, and then pictures of his dogs and everything else um hanging up in my office i'm not sure how he'd feel about me running setters but you know <laughs> that's, that's okay so <laughs> love that love that you gotta yeah you gotta be a little friction there uh, so i, I am I, I mean i'll say lightly familiar with main guide to the point of i knew that it was a thing you know to be a main guy yeah. it's different it's different than if somebody here says oh yeah i'm a grouse guide or something um, sure and you sent me a little you sent me a little article that philson published with some some basics on it and so it's it's really a it's a state-run program to be a main guide is that correct yeah correct it was fun i think the first main guide uh was ni- 1897 okay i think um was the uh was the first main guide um yeah and it's it's a program it's not as simple as uh just you know waking up one day and deciding that you want to be a uh be a guide it's it's you know it's it's quite a process you know to become one uh there's an application process of course as background checks that they run on you um and they actually run those every renewal as well um on you and then you know you you, you apply and you go in and you test there's a, there's a written test um there's three kind of primary primary main guide there's a couple um there's like salt i think there's a saltwater guide there's a rafting guide but then there's 
there's hunting, fishing, and recreational guides. And those are all three kind of treated separately. So just because I'm a main guide that can guide hunting doesn't mean that I can guide fishing, doesn't mean that I can guide guide hiking. So you go in and you take a uh, a written exam that pertains exactly to uh, to which one you're going to uh, you're testing for, and it's going to test you on the regulations, your understanding of the game that you're chasing, and those types of things. And then after you take that test, assuming you pass it, um, you go in and there's uh, there's a thorough um, oral board um, examination that you have to take okay. with several um, pass or fail um, components to it. The first uh, the first piece would be map and compass. Um, where they, uh, they make you kind of, they give you some, some coordinates and they give you some areas and, and you have to go on some maps and, and show them where you, uh, where you wind up based off of the information that they're uh, telling you. And it's, you know, a demonstration that you understand how to utilize a, uh, a compass. And I think, you know, this, this day and age, so much, so many of us become reliant upon uh, GPS, but, and, and. I'm guilty of that as well, I guess, right. but there's nothing that'll put my heart in my throat any quicker than looking down at my GPS and realizing the battery is uh, dead. <laughs> yeah. and, um, <laughs> and I'm um, several hundred yards down into a cover. Um, so they want to get an under, they want to make sure that you understand how to get people into the woods and get people out of the woods uh, safely. Yeah. And assuming you pass the, uh, the map and compass piece, then you have to go ahead and uh, they give you a catastrophic, catastrophic event um where they walk you through an event that's actually happened and you have to kind of talk them through it and as you talk them through what your response to that catastrophic event would be they um you know they throw wrenches at you um as you go so they'll pull your ability to communicate away they'll uh, they'll they'll add more problems and it could be it used to be a lost person um uh, but now it's lost person and catastrophic event and that's a pass or fail as well. And assuming you get through the map and compass and then the catastrophic event, then you go on and you're interviewed by, a, you know, essentially a board of, I would call them old curmudgeon guides, uh, <laughs> guys that have been doing it for, uh, for many years. And then also occasionally, I believe I had one on my board, um, was a, uh, um, was a game warden, a former game warden, okay. um, who, uh, who interviewed you. And then they spent, I don't remember how long it was, probably roughly an hour anyways, kind of, you know, identifying game, identifying photos, asking ethical questions, um, those types of things. And assuming you kind of make it through all of that, um, you get, uh, you get your guide patch and you get to turn around and do it again the next day if you want to fish as well. So, <laughs> um, it's quite a process. Yeah, that's incredible. So when when do you get the green jacket? <laughs> you buy that green jacket anytime you want to buy the green jacket. Really? Uh, so I can go on LL Bean and buy one of those. Go to LL Bean and buy one. I think Felson might have one. They actually call the main guy jacket. Um, it's the patch that we're all going for, though. It's okay. That, uh, okay. It's that main guy patch that everybody's uh, everybody's going for that you then have to sew on to that main guy jacket. So. <laughs> That's awesome. I know, I actually I know for I have two. They're LL Bean shirts and they're. I believe they call them the main guide shirt. They're, you know, sure. I got, I got one, the classic, classic, uh, green and black plaid. Yep. And then I've got a, got another, those are my, my deer hunting shirts, but well, actually yeah, yeah. Uh, the green and black plaid one, I wear that. I wear that all. I mean, obviously, uh, probably not telling the listeners anything they don't know, but a, a nice wool shirt, uh, breathable and keeps you warm. I wear that as, as I'm walking the dogs all winter. 
Yeah, I mean, to me, a wool shirt is uh, is 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 hard to beat um, when it comes to a when it comes to burden and in particular. So it's uh, they actually, I I, I believe during my um, test, they had actually asked a little bit about wool and uh, you know why that was preferable to uh, to cotton in wet yeah, conditions. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, yep. <laughs> so yeah, very cool. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. All right, so dumb question. Uh, you gotta be a main guy. I don't know why I'm drawn to this. Like, I'm just curious about like the, maybe the gray areas, like you've got to be a main guy to be a guide in Maine. Are there, is there gray area or like, what's the, what's the hard line in the sand as far as like guiding goes in Maine? I mean, is there, are there people that try to like get around it for any reason or anything like that? So my understanding is you cannot guide somebody and and make money off of it unless you're a main guide. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I believe that there are kind of nonprofit hunts that take place that has, you know, air quotes, a guide, okay. um, yep. you know, that may not actually be a uh, guide, but in order to guide um, for a profit or, or for financial reasons, you have to be a, a registered main guide. It doesn't mean you have to be a main resident. There's plenty of non-residents. Um, that, uh, that have, you know, their main guide license and some that own lodges up here. There's some that travel up here every year to, uh, to guide. But, uh, yes, in order, I believe in order to, uh, now somebody might correct me on this, but my understanding is in order to, uh, to guide for, for money in Maine, you have to be a, a registered Maine guide. Yeah, that makes sense. I, yeah, I just was, was curious it being, a being a like more of a defined state program like that. I, I won't claim to be a, an expert on state guiding programs. So I really don't know the difference between one or the other, other than the main guide one has always stood out to me because I think there is some, you know, there's some history and some legacy and allure to it. Yeah. And when I took it, I believe that they had told us that it was one of the few, if not the only guide program um, in the country that was recognized by all the other states. Okay. Um, you know, so I, I think it carries some weight uh, when it comes to going and guiding in other states. And I should point out to people, too, that just because you're a main guide, they're not confirming your ability to find game, put people sure. on game, anything like that. They they look at the main guide, I think, as more of an arm of inland fishery and wildlife. And um, 
you know, the ability, they want you to have the ability to get somebody into the woods and out of the woods safely. And if something happens, like a lost person, a medical event or something like that, they want to be confident that the main guide is able to, uh, to react properly to kind of minimize the, uh, minimize the, the outcome of that. Yeah. One, th- I will point out one thing of note in that the little article I read from Filson was that there is some authority extended to the main guides in that, I believe any any of you could you could ask somebody for their hunting or fishing license. I don't know what extent your authority extends beyond that, but I'd be, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that. There's a little bit of a expectation. There's a high level of expectation of mean guys to kind of act within the uh, within the law and uh, and then kind of be the eyes Certainly. and ears. Um, yeah, be stewards. For, uh, of the land. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's a great way to put it. You know, so part of that could be informing. Part of that could be educating. Yeah. Um, for me, you know, the people that I ask for copies of their licenses, the people that are hunting with me. Um, you yeah. know, if you're going to hunt with me, I need to. Uh, I need to see a copy of the license just to verify that you have it, because I have some skin in the game as well. For sure, um, I can yeah. get cited for uh, for somebody that that's under my kind of care and control as a guide, um, I can get cited for, uh, um, for them violating those rules. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, yeah, that's a, I don't know. That's a neat thing. It's, it's kind of like a, a respect thing given to the, given to the guys a little, little bit of, a little bit of a backbone, you know, to prop you guys up as, as eyes and ears for the wardens yeah, and it, everybody else. And it makes sense, right? Because the warden service isn't huge, and they have an enormous amount of uh, ground that they have to uh, they have to cover, you know. And I mean, I'll I can say since I've been guiding in Maine, I've never had somebody um, get checked by a warden. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. Which is just yeah. a testament, right? To uh, you know, to how few and far between they are. Now they will tell you, and I, and this is accurate that you never know, you know, they might be watching, you just don't know. Sure. Um, and, 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 you know, there is that, uh, there is that factor. Um, but from my standpoint, you know, you don't very often, um, run into them. Um, you know, but I can say, you know, the relationship between the, you know, the main guide and the, uh, in, in the game warden is, it's generally extremely positive. And, you know, yeah. if we do meet each other on the roads, we, you know, we typically stop and chat with each other and, you know, um, can be, uh, can be incredible, helpful, uh, incredibly helpful, um, on both ends. You know, I've, uh, ran into an issue last year, um, with a dog getting hung up in a, in a coyote trap mm. and, uh, you know, and the warden was able to, uh, to kind of help out and was pretty interested in that. Uh, the fact that the dog was in a coyote trap and the location that he was in the coyote trap, the warden was pretty interested. Oh um, uh, yeah. In that. yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Well, it's, just transition a little bit. I want to talk about your foray into grouse guiding and bird guiding and kind of like what you, you know, you've obviously been doing it. Was it eight years that you said eight or so uh, years you've been grouse guiding? So I've been guiding 10, I would say nine years. Okay. Nine uh, years. My foray, I guess into it started right out of guide school yeah. um, and passing my test. And it started with a, with a small lodge that he called me and said, Hey, I can't find a guy, but I've got a group of uh, grouse hunters coming in. They have their own dogs and everything. Can you come up and, uh, and take sure. them out? So, you know, so I was familiar with the area. So I went up and, uh, and took them out and really just took to, to the grouse crowd. 
Um, I guess the, the folks that I was guiding, I really enjoyed that group. Cool. And, uh, you know, so it, it kind of sparked that interest. And then the dog um, followed very shortly after. And I was able to build a relationship with the lodge up basically as far north as you can uh, as you can go in Maine. Um, I built a relationship uh, with them. And they were looking for a uh, guy that could come up and guide um, with a dog. And this, these are the ones that had the, uh, the extra dog to supplement. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that worked out well. So that kind of started it, uh, for me and I guided for him for, uh, for, for quite a while. Yeah. And you've just obviously continued to enjoy it. No plans on slowing down. What do you, what do you love about being out in the woods, guiding others in the fall? Yeah. I mean, I've, uh, if nothing else, I mean, if anything, I've probably gone all in on it. You know, I've got, uh, you know, I've got the three dogs. Um, obviously I spend an enormous amount of time um, doing the scouting and the, then the kind of the year round thing, um, for me, I, I enjoy, um, the social aspect of it. Um, I enjoy the success of it. I, I think my, as a rule, most of the, the folks that I have had kind of the, the, the pleasure of guiding are just out for the experience. You know, yeah. they like to be out in the woods um, they like good food. They enjoy the, uh, you know, the good drinks at the end of the day, they enjoy seeing the dog work and the, the success of the dog. Um, you know, when all the stars line up in the point and the flush and, and they're able to make a contact, uh, with it, you know, so I think that group of, uh, of people, and I've built some lifelong friends, you know, through grouse guiding, you know, folks that yeah. I talk to almost weekly, um, because of it. So I think, uh, you know, guiding for me, is a good opportunity to get the dogs out a lot and I, and I enjoy it. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I want to get into as a guide and, and as we talked about with your work and your ability to get on the landscape a lot and, and spend a lot of time scouting and exploring, love to pick your brain on how you go about finding grouse covers and, and how you access pieces of property and what the, what the ownership type of land looks like. This is something I talked about with Nick Adair not long ago um, when he was on, he took a trip up there and I had known that, you know, there's a big, private land open to public access component in Maine. Yep. Um, and then there's this whole thing called the North Maine woods. Um, let's just, let's jump off there and uh, talk to me about what the property and, and land access looks like up there. So folks that are interested in hunting in Maine, North Maine woods is a good place to start. Um, that my understanding is basically a conglomerate of, uh, of landowners. It's about 3.5 million acres yep. of, uh, of land um, that's owned by various different landowners from okay. all around the world that, uh, you know, that own these land and they hire management companies. So there's management companies up here that have, that employ foresters, employ folks that manage the roads. Um, and then the foresters in turn hire the, uh, the logging contractors. So the North Main woods is, you know, it's a 3.5 million acres, um, of work in forest. It's, yeah. uh, I think that's an important point for folks to understand is that, uh, you know, it's, we're up there recreating, we're enjoying that area, but you know, we're, we're working with, 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 with loggers, you know, and it's, yeah. uh, you know, those areas are being logged and harvested constantly. Um, so it's kind of reality of what, uh, of what we deal with. Um, but you know, we start in those areas that's open to, uh, to hunting. There's a, um, 
there's a land use fee that you pay all that major access roads um, into these lands have a little you know it's essentially a gatehouse and you drive up to it and there's a little cable across the road and uh and you stop there and you go in you kind of let them know where you're going and 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 how long you're going to be there and then you pay a fee um to uh to go in and use the uh use that land and that goes towards management of the land you know the roads have to be graded yep. you know and then they have to manage the uh the, the campsites and everything else but that's you know it's a good opportunity for someone that's that's ambitious you know to come up and you can camp and there's there's regulations on the size camper you're allowed to bring into uh, the north main woods but you're allowed to bring a camper in and camp uh there you're allowed to tent and then there's plenty of lodges uh or sporting lodges in those areas as well that uh, that you can go in and uh and stay at uh, okay, so well. so so within the North Main, well, obviously this is a huge this is a huge piece of property. So with within that there are there are lodges and and other amenities and outfitters and stuff inside that. Yeah, so there's no there's no paved roads, there's no cell phone service, wow. um, there's no restaurants, there's no fuel. Well, fuel would be limited. Okay. Um, you know, the lodge that you're at may or may not have fuel that you can uh, you can buy off of them, but it is uh, it's pretty limited. There's zero essentially amenities once you're uh, once you're in the North Main Woods. I think that's an important thing to be aware of. I mean, this this yeah. three thousand miles of dirt road. Well. That's uh, that's maintained. Uh, so you know it's it can be a little bit overwhelming for somebody that's coming up to the area to to kind of go in. And I think a lot of the folks you know that I talk to that are that are staying at the lodges in those areas, they never make it outside of ten miles from the lodge. You know, which is uh, which is kind of unfortunate, but it's also understandable, right? Because yeah. because it is such an enormous uh, enormous track of land. So I would say, you know, anybody that's coming up uh, to Maine to hunt, um, it's important to familiarize yourself um, with that area. I would highly recommend purchasing a you know, it's a gazetteer is what it's called, and it's uh, um, it's a Maine gazetteer, and it's you know, it's it's mapping from Delorme, uh, which is a mapping company that used yep. to be based in Maine. And, um, and they have very good maps of those areas. They have gates, uh, where the gates are, you know, and then they've got kind of non-improved roads and, and they have generally a pretty, they do generally a pretty good job mapping out that North Maine woods. Um, so I would highly encourage anybody to kind of familiarize yourself um, with that and then just being prepared. Right. Um, you know, I mean, I had to visit a client uh, a couple of years ago. I was 130 miles from paved road um, <laughs> when I when I met him, you know, so it's it's easy to and I knew where I was going. Um, so it's easy to get a long, long, long ways, um, away from, uh, from any type of, uh, any type of help, um, when you're, when you're up in the North Main Woods. Yeah. I think when, when you told me that story last week, I think that is what I think kind of perked up my interest even more so than it had been. Not that I was ever like disinterested in hunting in Maine, but again, going back to that conversation we kicked off with, but this idea that, you know, cause as as remote as some areas are that I hunt in Minnesota and Wisconsin, I I mean just at a on the surface level, like I would I would never think that I'm I'm even close to that far from paved roads and or cell service. Like it just it just does not seem to be that remote. And then the other thing going there is like we've got some areas in Minnesota that you might call that remote, but then 
I would I wouldn't I wouldn't think that those would necessarily be so actively managed to call them working forests. You know, like I mean, one area in particular, BWCA, that's that's a wilderness area. They're not managing the forest in there. But that's like when I think remote, I think of that. So this idea that you've got this remote deep territory that is still a, an active working forest, um, you know, as a as a gruff rough grouse and woodcock nut that gets me pretty excited (laughs) so when you look at the map um of maine you'll see there's a lot of areas in the north maine woods that actually have border crossings and it's really funny um because you'll be driving along i I mean not seeing a soul um for three or four hours um and you'll be a hundred miles 150 miles back and you come to a border crossing and there's a little yeah. border station there um that's actually manned it has a border guard and there's a canadian side and a uh in the u.s side to that border but on generally on the other side of those borders is a mill so this entire road system is built around harvesting yeah. that forest and it's built around the idea of having trucks hauling wood that don't have to be road legal. So you have weight limits on your standard highways, depending on where you're at. In Maine, it's 100,000 pounds on a truck. In most areas, it's 80,000 pounds um, on a truck. We don't have to... Uh, work under those regulations in the North Main Woods. So we have trucks that are coming across the scale at 250,000 pounds. Wow. You know, so yeah, there's an, there's enormous trucks. They harvest that area. There's an enormous amount of contractors um, that work in these areas and they still stay in the traditional logging camps that are way, way, way out. So yeah, you're, you're, it's tough to get away from that when you're in the North Main Woods, but that's what makes the grouse hunting up here. So, so good. Yeah. So outside of the this North Main Woods, this privately accessible or publicly accessible private lands, are there state lands? Are there county lands? Um, I, I actually learned a little bit about county lands and that they're maybe not so so much the norm as they are around here. Um, what other types of land might you be grouse hunting in Maine? Um, so, you know, there's plenty of this, this state land and then there is okay. some uh, some private land. Um, as well that uh, that you can access but there is so much what a lot of people up here would call paper company land yeah yep there's so much paper company land you know the north maine woods is certainly the large majority of it but you can work your way into to western maine and what and uh and do very well on paper company land over in those areas um, as well so you know for me that's kind of the large majority of the uh, of the ground that i focus on because there's so much of it um there's so much of it available that you know i mean you get north of bangor you know you can pretty much find that land just about anywhere you go gotcha yeah so what are you what are you looking for as a as a grouse hunter grouse guide what are you looking for in your covers didn't talk to me about you know a favorite place you might go what does it look like so that's, I mean, that's going to depend a lot on a couple of different factors. Uh, time yeah. of year um, is going to be interesting. You know, last year, last year was interesting for us. Almost all the birds that we found were well off the road um, down in kind of the cedar bogs and, uh, and softwood areas um, we found is where we were generally finding birds. And, I'm guessing it was you know, pretty the, dry even out your way last year. Yeah, but the mushroom population was very good. Okay. Um, so there was a great mushroom population and the birds, um, seemed to be most of the birds that we opened up. That's what they were, uh, that's what they were eating. And that's, you know, 
that's generally good for the first um, first couple of weeks. But this mm-hmm. year, it seemed like you know most of October. That's that's where we were finding the birds was in those uh, those types of areas. But typically, you know, what I'm looking for is I'll look for primarily hardwood with softwood mixed in. Um, we have enough of a road system up here where you can find a road that's not passable um, yeah. by vehicle. And we're not in the North Main Woods. You're not allowed to have ATVs. Um, yeah, so we don't compete with those at all. So if you can find a road that's not passable, you know, that's generally a pretty good area to, uh, to kind of start and and walk in those areas. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So so you've got, so you can drive your truck anywhere you can drive it, but then if you can find places that, um, would be like bermed up or something. Yeah. You'll find a lot of areas where the, uh, um, the landowners trying to keep people out or keep people from driving. So they'll put a berm, yeah. they'll rip a culvert out, um, you know, something like that. And you're quite often able to, uh, you know, go up over that berm and walk those areas, okay. you know, but oftentimes it's just a road that's grown in. It's grown in heavy with alders. Um, it will be a little bit tough walking. Um, but we've, you know, generally done very, very well on that. Um, uh, the moose tend to like those areas. Mm, sure, um, yeah. so they'll, they'll resistance. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. So they'll cut a little bit of a path, though, um, yeah. for you. So, you know, you're ducking and dodging whips and stuff like that as you're walking down in there. But, you know, we generally do pretty well um, in those areas. But a lot of the area that I choose depends on who I'm guiding. Um, sure. You yeah. know, if I've got a couple, you know, guys like you and I that want to get after it, you know, we'll, we'll go and hunt some more challenging areas where I don't think a lot of other people are, uh, are hunting and we'll, you know, we'll burn some boot leather and, uh, and hunt some of those challenging areas and, and get into the birds. And if I've got, you know, a crew that maybe isn't quite as, uh, into that idea and they're more about just kind of enjoying the walk, which is great. Yep. That's probably the large majority of the people that I do guide. We'll look for areas that are kind of, you know, a little bit of a grown in road that, uh, that we can park and, uh, and, and hunt. We do still, we still do pretty well in those areas. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, as, as I'm sure, you know, the, those, those are essentially maintained edges and they, they stay a, a good edge in the forest for a long time. Those roads. Yeah. And it maintains gravel too, right? So you've yep. got gravel, um, that's still there. Um, you got to dig for it a little bit typically, but you know, you've got gravel, you've got great overhead cover from yep. your, uh, from your predators overhead and then it's thick. So a bird can kind of tuck and run pretty easily if they need to. Um, so it can be challenging to, uh, to hunt, but I find that we do, uh, we do pretty well in those types of areas. What about topography? Now, I know Maine's got some, I mean, there's there's some definitely some elevation change and some, togra- some topography. Do you find yourself generally, you mentioned alder and cedars, do you kind of s- primarily stick lower and hunt that, or do you get up onto some higher ground and hunt some higher covers? How do, Does that play into your thought process at all? It's going to depend a lot on what the birds are doing. Okay. You know, when we make contact with our first bird, that's going, um, that's sending alarms up for me. And we're, uh, you know, kind of registering what they're in. And then from that, we can kind of gauge the hunt uh, yep. based off of uh, based off of where we're finding the birds that day. But it changes, you know, I mean, it changes, especially when you guide all month, it changes quite a bit. And we have to be, uh, you know, you, you have to be able to move, able to change plans around um, on a dime. You know, so I don't, we don't hunt a lot of real steep areas. 
Yep. You know, most of the areas, if it doesn't have a road, it, you know, it definitely could have a road, um, you know, or had had a road uh, in the past. And those kind of the areas we typically uh, t- typically stick to. I don't know how the guys out west do the chucker hunting. And as much as I want to be able to do that, <laughs> I don't. I do not understand how they do that. We don't get into anything, obviously, you know, steep like that. Um, yeah, or the grouse hunters down in the southeast too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, we don't. We don't really. No, we don't get into anything real, uh, real steep like that. It's it's moderate, uh, moderate terrain. It, yeah. The challenges for us, you know, with, with working our way through that, uh, through those covers is just, you know, a lot of downed trees that we're working around, yeah. um, rotten trees, those types of things. You know, some of the areas that we were finding birds last year, I've just never seen anything like it um, before, but it was bogs where you're kind of jumping from stump to stump to try to get across the beaver bog or something like mm. that, you know? And that's yeah. what I say when I, you know, if I've got a younger group or a group that wants to get after it a little bit, we'll go down to areas that, you know, the, the road is completely washed out because of a big beaver dam and we'll, we'll work yep. our way around the beaver dam and hunt the other side of that. And we've generally done pretty well. How do, how do woodcock fit in? Is it a pretty mixed bag hunt almost everywhere you go, or is that not exactly the case? So, I, um, it, it's certainly not a focal point of the hunt, uh, okay. in the North main woods, uh, okay. in the North main woods, if you can get into the woodcock, you know, it's exciting. Um, obviously it's fun for the dog. It's fun for the client. Um, if you're able to get into it, but that is certainly not a, a game that I ever target, um, in the North main woods. Generally the folks that we get, um, in that area are looking to, uh, to target grouse and the, uh, the woodcock would be a bonus. You know, now that being said, Eastern Maine, that down East region, the Grand Lake stream region, um, there's a, uh, a moose horn, they call it the moose horn and it's a uh, federally managed, uh, grounds that are managed for woodcock. Oh yeah. I think that's um, come up in, uh, I was just reading an article by him the other day, Eric Blumberg, he, he works okay. in Maine. Um, and I believe he has mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah, so that's managed specifically for woodcock. So you can go over in that area and do very, very well um, with woodcock. And the guide, some of the guides that I know in that area, really, it's kind of flip flop. They target sure. the woodcock, and the grouse are uh, the grouse are the bonus birds in those areas. Yeah, that's. I was I was curious uh, about that specifically, and and how the distribution of those birds kind of shook out across the state, just being such a such a big big state with lots of forested lands. So yeah, that's, th- that's interesting. I think in my, you know, 10 years or so of guiding up in Northern Maine, we've really got into the woodcock just a couple of times. Like, oh, wow. like you okay. would see, um, you know, I mean, you get resident birds and stuff like that on occasion, you'll get a couple contacts a day, maybe, but those days where it's the 30, 40 points, um, those types of days, those have been pretty few and far between, but I think a lot of that is just because we spent so much time targeting, um, yep. you know, the, 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 areas with the grouse that, you know, if we get back to the lodge and somebody had some success with woodcock and we start to think maybe the flight birds are in, we might go out and try to try to get after them a little bit, but you know, yeah. our, our focus is primarily on the grouse. Give me 20 or 30 grouse contacts and a handful of woodcock contacts, and I'm a pretty happy guy. <laughs> I mean, we're having a pretty good day if we're uh, if we're doing that. We throw in a couple good points and a couple good retrieves and maybe some stories. Um, yeah. You know, I think uh, – I think, I think we've had a pretty good day. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> so is there, is there a bird 
and or a hunt that would be near the top of the list that might actually get you out of that that uh those riches over there and and get you to go hunt out of state somewhere different quail quail bob quail. white quail i want to hunt quail yeah 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 i want to uh i want to go on a quail hunt um bad i which is funny because i don't like snakes um at all i don't think so, i do either <laughs> yeah so, so i hear um anybody that i follow on facebook or anything like that that's an avid quail hunter it seems like snakes are almost always at least part of the conversation um when it comes to uh comes to quail hunting so but i for some reason the idea of uh of going after quail really uh really interests me and you know that's something if you know if i remember correct end of december or january sure. um down in texas i think you can generally do pretty well um for quail so for me yes i would love to go on a quail hunt yeah maybe after your your guiding and hunting season has wound down go do something a little different that'd be cool yeah we need to uh me to need to travel we've got a uh We've got a new uh, kennel box coming for the truck from Mountaintop, um, okay. so the truck's going to be pretty well set up for uh, for for travel and um, this season. So that's a, that's a good possibility. Excellent. I think we I think I covered most everything I wanted to. Um, what's uh, what are your plans for for the new pup? He's what he's eight weeks old now, nine weeks old now. Yeah, so he's about nine weeks old. I'm sitting here looking at him right now. Um, he's not whining you know, or whimpering. No, he's not whining. He's chewing on something. <laughs> Hopefully not your main guide jacket. So, no, not the main guide jacket. No, no. He's, he's figured out where the food's stored, though. So he uh, spends a lot of time kind of focused on that. Yeah, we'll... Uh, he, Right now, it's just kind of that socialization. It's yeah. the uh, the introduction to the other dogs, um, you know, which has been interesting, I suppose. Yeah, I really really thought my younger setter would be excited about this and the older dog would kind of roll his eyes and not be on board with it. And it's just been the exact opposite. <laughs> um, that younger setter is not having it. He is not excited <laughs> about the new dog um, at all. So he's starting to come around. I've noticed in the last couple of days, um, starting to come around a little bit, but he, uh, he's not excited about this. So, but you know, we'll, uh, we're, we're enjoying the puppy walks out behind the house now and just yeah. getting them around, um, in those areas. And then we'll, you know, gunfire introduction will start, uh, start shortly. And, uh, you know, like I said, I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not an expert trainer. Yeah. Um, I will admit that there's a lot of people that are really good at it and I listen to them, um, a lot, but for me, you know, a bird, he finds birds and he stops and he stands and points um, that's what I'm looking for. You know, that's yep. uh, ultimately at the end of the day, that's uh, that's what I'm looking for out of a uh, out of a bird dog. So and you got repeat clients, so that's a pretty good affirmation right there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think my longest repeat client now is eight years, um, and he'll be up. Uh, he'll be up again. Uh, he'll be up again this year. So um, you know, it's exciting. It's exciting getting new folks um, ready to come up to hunt in Maine. I think, uh, yeah. you know, we, if you come hunt with me, um, we generally start doing zoom calls leading up to the, uh, to the hunt. I want to introduce myself, get you familiar with kind of my expectations and what the process is going to look like and, and cool. that type of stuff. So it's not completely, uh, brand new, um, when you get up here and, uh, you know, we start with that and the, uh, you know, that relationship starts, uh, starts pretty early, um, for me. So we'll get people ready to, uh, to come up here and that way when they get here they can kind of uh hit the ground running um because you know it takes 
some preparation. I always try to tell people preparation is year round. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you follow bow hunting at all, or, you know, Cameron Haynes is, is somebody I yep. kind of follow a little bit. Oh, yeah. He says, he says, train hard, hunt easy. And, uh, and I love that. I like to that. Me, yeah. You I like know, that it's, yeah. Don't, uh, don't buy a brand new pair of boots on your way up, uh, here, <laughs> which I see it quite often, but, uh, you know, get out and shoot that shotgun, get ready to, uh, get ready to kind of take on some challenging shots and burn some boot leather and, you know, spend some time on the uh, on the old treadmill, and uh, your hunt will be that much more enjoyable um, when you get up here. Because nobody wants to come up and not be ready for the uh, not be ready for the hunt and spend the entire week miserable because of it. So, yeah. Have you uh, read and or listened to Cam Haynes's new book that just released recently? I've got it. Yes, I've got okay. it, and I've been uh, I've been working my way through it um, right now, and it's uh, you know it's 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 certainly inspiring. Um, he's, a uh, he's a wild man that 2am going out for going out for a marathon before work and then shooting your bow yeah. and then I had a marathon at lunch. I don't know how he does it. That's, uh, that's wild, but it's, uh, it's certainly, uh, inspirational. So, yeah, I, uh, I've, I've listened to him on whenever he's on Joe Rogan's podcast, I listen to him and, and enjoy that. And I, I've listened to him recently and then listened to him on, uh, the Jocko podcast too, which I, just a it's obviously kind of a side note here but it didn't know a whole lot about his background and kind of like some of the challenges and stuff he had in his upbringing and obviously they were they were talking about that sort of preview in the book so yeah i i downloaded the book on on audible i'm gonna i'm gonna listen to it i was listening to those podcasts on my way back and forth during my spring turkey hunts uh it's over the last the book is really good i definitely i definitely recommend the book it's uh it's it's been very interesting so far i'm only probably a quarter of the way um into it but i had pre-ordered it but you know he he brings up a lot of good points and i think uh you know for for any grouse hunter too you know he brings up a lot of good points as far as the, the physical fitness um part of this and the better prepared you are the uh the more enjoyable that uh that hunt will be and the, the more ability to kind of seal the deal on some of these birds i think uh i think you'll have because i've seen you know i've seen plenty of people come up thinking that they're ready to uh to hunt only you know end of the day or end of the first day just be completely wiped out and not sure that they can keep going you know and they usually can keep going and, and as a guide that's something we try to watch and we try to gauge that uh that hunt but it's also tough to uh you know know that you know we just walk a little bit further we're going to be in a really good spot here but you know I'll, i need to turn around because you know yep. this guy's not doing so hot so you know i think uh that that preparation, that early season prep is uh, is huge, and I think um, the shooting piece cannot be understated. I think getting out and, and breaking some uh, breaking some clays is 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 hugely important. Don't dust that shotgun off right uh, right before you come up. Those dogs are working hard, right? You know, the dogs yep. are working really hard, and their their reward generally is 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 sealing the deal um, and dumping a bird so they can get that retrieve. And it's uh, you know it's tough. It's tough when we miss a lot of them, you know. Yeah, it's nice to nice to see it all come together like that. Obviously, that's that's most folks' goal. But no, I think you I think you bring up a good point. I mean, you were talking earlier. I mean, I think anybody that's done it enough, you know that you can and do find yourself in challenging situations uh, in challenging terrain. You know, it can be can be tough on you. And I think you'd be if you're around it enough. We've all been around folks that are that are later in life that are slowing down and you know sometimes that slowing down in in the sense that they've 
they've sort of been there, done that, and they're just they're going about it, getting their enjoyment in a different way. But the, I mean, the fear sort of in the back of the mind is like, I would hate to be if if I if I had control over it, I would hate to be limited in the woods by like poor decisions and not not taking care of myself physically or being in shape or anything like that. I mean, all that can kind of play into you know how much juice you can squeeze out of this thing and it's inevitable we will all be done hunting one day but i mean i i think like you i i sure hope to maximize every chance i get out there yeah and i think that's uh you know that's a great point that uh it's it's fun when you get those groups that you know are looking for that other uh that other thing that you talked about, um, you know, they're just out there relaxing. They, yeah. you know, they're just having a great time as a group and, you know, they go out and walk three, four miles. They're, they're just as happy um, right. doing that. Those, uh, those groups are a lot of fun to, uh, to, to kind of guide. And it's interesting, you know, it's always interesting to me to, uh, to learn from them. You know, I get a lot of those types of groups and I would say the majority of the folks that, uh, that come up to Maine, and, and, and hire a guide for the week that that is that that it's generally that crew um yeah. it's you know and and they're generally leaving you and going somewhere else to uh to chase games somewhere else you know so it's always fascinating to kind of hear the uh the stories and you know as a guide i think that's what i like the most about it is uh just that that opportunity to uh to meet people um and learn from uh learn from people you kind of i think it's hard starting out as a guide i think it's hard sometimes to not have a little bit of an ego especially you get through all that testing and everything else that goes sure, into sure. to getting that patch it's tough to not be like well you know i'm pretty uh, i'm pretty special because of this um <laughs> but you learn uh you learn pretty quick that you uh you know as the uh, as the old saying goes right you you realize how much you don't know and uh you know i learned so much from the folks that i guide and just get so much pleasure out of uh spending spending a day um in the woods working with uh working with people like that and showing them some areas that, you know i grew up i mean this is my roots and uh you know it's it's a state that i'm proud of it's areas that i'm proud of and uh you know the the dogs and the birds are you know they're bonuses um, yeah. that that the birds are certainly a bonus um but the rest of it i think is is, is what makes it so enjoyable and mark guide service tell me the tell me where the name came from yeah i get a lot of questions on on where endmark uh guide service came from um you know as i kind of alluded to my my family obviously was was sportsmen but um i grew up around the logging industry you know as grouse hunters we rely a lot on the logging industry and the success successfully managing the uh the forest so i yeah. wanted to pick something that i felt uh, um was kind of a nod to uh to to my roots and uh my grandfather um, was a logging contractor um, in the North Main Woods. Many of the areas that he uh, he logged um, were areas that I hunt today. And um, what they would do, they would cut wood all winter. And during the winter, they would take and pile that wood um, up on the lakes. The lakes were all frozen. They would pile that wood up on the lakes and uh, get it ready for the spring thaw. And the spring thaw, the, uh, the, the river drive was on and they would, uh, you know, they'd flow that wood down the river um, to the mill where it'd be picked out, um, it'd be picked out by the mill and processed. And they needed a way to pay the uh, logging contractors for the wood that they had harvested. Um, so what they came up with was, was they would take an ax and on the back of the ax head, they would put an end mark 
um, on the back of the, the axe head and each uh, contractor had an own, their own unique end mark um, that they would uh, tap into the end of the logs um, that would go down to the wood, uh, down to the mill so they could get paid. I love it. Love the family tie. I love the tip of the cap to forestry and logging. That's just super cool. Yeah, yeah, it was. I, I I saw that, and I was chatting with my uncle, who's also a guide, about it. And he's like, "Boy, if you don't take that, I'm taking it." And, uh, <laughs> it's neat, you know. It brings up uh, brings up some good stories and a good uh, good opportunity to kind of talk about how important the uh, the the forest is to to what we do. Yeah, yeah, very cool, man. Well said. Uh, shoot, man. Thanks for your time on the Birch Out Podcast today. This has been a blast. If folks are interested in Maine or want to learn more about after hearing this conversation, um, might they be able to get in touch with you somewhere? Yeah, so I'm as far as guiding goes, I'm pretty much book solid. Okay. I am happy, though, to uh, to chat with people, kind of talk them through planning a hunt to Maine, things to consider, gear, you know, that type of stuff. I'm happy to chat with folks about that. Um, Facebook, I'm on Facebook, Ted Clark and uh, Enmark Guide Service on uh, has its own page. And I also have an Instagram, which is also Enmark Guide Service. Some folks are welcome to uh, link up with me on there and reach out. I don't post a lot of uh, game pictures or client pictures um, on there, but I always try to bring in a little bit of gear and stuff like that just to kind of help people better prepare for a, uh, for a hunt up here in, uh, in Maine. Good stuff, man. I like it. Uh, it sounds like if I want to come out there and hunt with you, I'm going to have to get on your list like a couple of years in advance. You just let me know. We can uh, we can <laughs> figure something out, all right? All right, buddy. <laughs> I appreciate it. It was, uh, it was fun learning more about Maine and uh, connecting some dots for myself and my mind. I've always uh, thought fondly of the state, and I think I'm pretty sold on it after talking to you if I wasn't already. So thanks for the time, buddy. I appreciate it. Wish you the best of luck with that new pup, and hope you have a great hunting season this fall let's chat soon let's keep in touch buddy all right well thank you so much for having me on you got it thanks for tuning in everybody that does it for this episode of the birdshot podcast presented by onyx hunt and final rise don't forget to rate review subscribe like and share and we'll catch you on the next episode of the birdshot podcast Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.